millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the latest Policy Forum pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the public policy challenges facing the Asia and Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce, and uh, I'm joined today by my co-host, Associate Professor Sharon Bessel, my regular co-host now. Hello, Sharon. How are you? Hi, Martin. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. And our guest today is uh, is very special. It's a very special interview we've got coming up for you. Yesterday, Sharon and I had the opportunity to sit down with Terry Waite, CBE. Terry is the co-founder of Hostage UK, an organisation which provides services to uh, the families of hostages around the world. Uh, Terry Waite's CBE has a long experience of negotiating for the release of hostages. He has successfully negotiated with General Amin in Uganda, Colonel Gaddafi in Libya, and revolutionary guards in Iran and Hezbollah in uh, Beirut. He was born in England in 1939 and worked for much of his life uh, from a church base, including in the areas of sort of conflict resolution and development. So in 1987, Terry was working for the Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcie, and it was at that time that he travelled to Lebanon to negotiate for the release of hostages. He went to Lebanon knowing how dangerous that that work was. He went to Lebanon knowing that there was a possibility that he himself may be held by the people who had taken the British hostages that he was negotiating on behalf of. And, and indeed, on the 20th of January in 1987, Terry was taken captive. He was held unimaginably for five years. Nearly four of those years were completely in solitary confinement. He was in the darkness for much of the time. He had no contact with, with other human beings, except for occasional contact with his guards. During his incarceration, he was blindfolded, he was beaten, he was subjected to mock, ex- mock execution. And for much of those five years, he lived chained to a wall in a room that had no natural light. Eventually, in November 1991, Terry was released, and it was at that time that the world heard his story. And one of the ways in which the world heard his story was through his book, Taken on Trust, which he essentially wrote in his head, as he describes it, while he was in captivity. This is genuinely a remarkable book, and when you read it, you have the sense of what he was going through, how harrowing that experience was, but also how he kept his sanity and his humanity during those five years of captivity. So it's a remarkable story. The book is a remarkable read. And equally remarkably is the life that Terry has led since and the the way in which he has been deeply engaged in humanitarian causes over the past 25 years since he was released. Yeah, he is an incredible uh, individual. And uh, on a personal level, Sharon, I've got to say this was a really 
amazing opportunity for me. I, I grew up in the UK and I grew up in the UK at the time when Terry Waite was taken hostage. And his story, his uh, captivity and his eventual release was a huge story in the country at that time. Everyone knew who Terry Waite was. So it was a great opportunity for me to sit down and meet the man face to face and actually hear about his experiences. But I've got to say what he had to say, uh, both in the uh, interview that we did with him and the public talk that he did at Crawford School, where we're based, beforehand, really, uh, there's some quite eye-opening stuff in there. Yeah, look, I agree, Martin, and much like you, um, I remember when uh, Terry Wade was taken hostage in Australia, as in the UK, there was an enormous amount of coverage, and he became a household name, and he also became, I guess, something of, a, of an icon of someone who had gone to such extraordinary lengths to try to negotiate on behalf of others and then had, had faced this awful fate himself. So there was a lot of media coverage of, of his, his plight over a prolonged period of time. So like you, I, was, uh, I just feel privileged to have had the opportunity to talk to him. And certainly, I think as people will hear when they listen to this podcast, he is an extraordinary man. Um, So it is a a real privilege to have the opportunity to hear some of his thoughts, not just on his experience of captivity, but but on the world and the challenges that we face. But we've got to uh, give our listeners a bit of a warning here, because some of the things that are talked about are quite confronting, aren't they? Yes, I I think it's important for people to know that he does talk about some very harrowing experiences um, and he gives some some very confronting examples of what he and others went through. Um, So people should be aware of that before they listen to it. And this is not a podcast and it's not a lecture that um, the children should listen to. It really does have some graphic and harrowing material. That said, though, it, some of the things that he talks about are genuinely life-affirming, and I think, that, um, it, I think that people will get a lot out of this and possibly even enjoy what he's got to say. Absolutely. This is really inspirational. So um, if you are a little older, <laughs> please listen to this. It's really worth listening to and reflecting on. As always, we are really keen to get your feedback on these podcasts, so don't hesitate to get in contact. You can reach us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum. Find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. And of course, you can keep up with all the latest on our website, policyforum.net. So we'll let you listen to the interview now. Sharon and I will be back at the end with a bit of analysis and a bit of chat about it. But here's what Terry Waite had to say. Enjoy. Terry White, many thanks for joining us. Very good to be here in Canberra. Thank you. Terry, you were a very public figure for a long time in the 1980s and 1990s. I, uh, being raised in the UK, your story, your both your captivity and your and your eventual uh, release were all over the media at the time. Has it been a bit of a relief to be a little less in the spotlight in the years following your ordeal? Well, I was in the public eye for a long time. Uh, Prior to captivity, as a a negotiator in different parts of the world, and to a certain extent, that's that's continued in recent years, although, of course, not with the same heavy coverage and high profile. Um, uh, I not found it too much of a strain for the simple reason that... uh, I believe that 
I've tried to take the experience of being captured, uh, try to take it creatively and make something from it. And I think that's something that um, can most people can do in some ways. You know, everybody in the world suffers to a greater or lesser extent, and some people suffer more than others, often through no fault of their own. And suffering is never easy to, to face. It's always difficult. But often something creative can emerge from suffering if you work for it, and in a surprising way. For example, when I um, came out of captivity, I decided that I was not going to take up my old salaried job, which had been left open for me. Um, but what I was going to do was to earn my own living by writing and lecturing and by giving my time away uh, to various causes that I felt keenly about. Uh, so, you know, I founded Hostage UK, which we'll talk about in a minute. I do a lot of work with the homeless, a lot of work with prisoners and so on and so forth, overseas development with young people. Now, prior to captivity, I would never have had the courage to give up a salary, <laughs> you know, particularly when you've got a mortgage to pay, you know. But captivity said, well, <clears throat> if you can go through five years with nothing, you can surely manage to paddle your own boat when you get out. And that's what I've been doing for the last 25 years now, 26 years now. Um, I've never had a salary, and I should let uh, your listeners know I'm not being paid to say this. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a paid interview. <laughs> Just to put your mind at rest. <laughs> Terry, you, you talk about you know, the way your life changed after you'd been in captivity and those decisions that you took that you may have not taken prior to, to being held captive. But I wonder what it was that, that led you into the kind of work that you... Um, we're doing. Um, not many people are courageous enough to be a hostage negotiator or to work in some of the contexts that you worked in prior to being taken captive. What was it that well, led very, you to those That's a very places? good question and uh, something I've puzzled about. Now, I've written several books uh, since release and I'm currently writing a book and it's not usual, nor necessarily is it necessarily a good thing for an author to declare what he's writing or she's writing before actually getting it into print. I've got to make an exception <laughs> now and stick my neck out. Um, I'm writing a book which looks back in my life at some very early significant events, which might seem mundane and simple, but had a profound effect as a child. Um... The simple point of being out at night alone, walking along a strange pathway and feeling the terrors of that, and then linking these early childhood experiences with uh, more contemporary events, both national, personal, international, and linking them together. Now, in, in that process, um, I have asked myself... What was it that meant you spend so much of your time working for the release of other people? And I think part of the answer to that is that, in fact, I was also working for my own inner release. 
my own freedom. You know, you don't have to be chained to the wall to experience um, captivity. And to gain inner freedom means in part also to gain a certain degree of inner wholeness. And I think by working for the freedom of other people, one was working for that as well. I don't think there's anything wrong in that. But I'm not of the belief, as I said earlier today in a lecture at the university, I'm not of the belief that when we do things for other people, we're doing them exclusively for other people. We're often doing something for ourselves, consciously or unconsciously. Was there a point, Terry, at which you, you made a decision that you wanted to work to release people who were being held captive, or was it something that evolved across a, a series of experiences? I suppose it goes back to my early days in Uganda, when I was there as a comparatively young man, and my colleagues were imprisoned, African colleagues, as well as European and in some cases murdered. And I remember seeing, for the first time in my life, uh, some poor unfortunate individual um, tied to a tree and beaten to death with sticks. And I still to this day can hear his bones breaking. And I realized at that time that when law and order breaks down in a society, people, no matter what culture they belong to, can behave in the most appalling ways. I mean, we've only to look at a very different culture in, let us say, the United States of America, when law and order has broken down in certain cities, and the most appalling crimes are committed by people who normally would live the ordinary decent lives. And I worked a lot at a later stage, this was in Uganda, the later stage, I worked a lot in, in South Africa, and I worked quite extensively alongside Desmond Tutu. He and I worked a lot together. We travelled around the country together. And again, I saw the effect of deprivation and imprisonment on people, and how so many people in this world uh, live in situations where they have no chance, no hope, because they're imprisoned. Not necessarily physically imprisoned all the time, but imprisoned by a system, imprisoned um, because of their race, imprisoned because of their lack of education, imprisoned because of the way in which they were born, or the circumstances in which, into which they were born. And I said, this is wrong. This is unfair. And the world is an unfair place. And I held, well, I'd like to make my contribution to trying to make it a little more human, a little fairer place. I don't believe in forcing religion at people for one moment, but I do believe that um, people are entitled to have a fair deal in life, and very few people in this world, comparatively speaking, have a fair deal. Terry, you were held hostage for an incredible 1,763 days, many of those in solitary confinement. You were blindfolded, chained to a wall, beaten, you faced mock executions. More than 20 years on, how much of your experience still stays with you? Well, it has never 
bothered me. I've never suffered from flashbacks or I was one of the fortunate ones, never had what you might term post-traumatic stress disorder. One of the reasons for that is that when I came out, I was given very good support, both me and my family. Um, we were able to tell our story before a trained listener. I didn't mean to say we were uh, mentally ill, but we needed to manage that story rather than be managed by it. Now, people have said to me, this is a very interesting point, um, oh, post-traumatic stress. Um, the Japanese prisoners of war, they never had any help, and they got on perfectly well. Well, for many years, I've been a patron of the Far Eastern prisoners of war, both with the men who are now rapidly leaving this life uh, and their families, their children. And I'm a patron of the children of the Far Eastern prisons of war. There's an association for them. You talk to those children. They uh, tell you, almost without exception, our father got off the ship at home. He was given so much, 40 pounds, whatever it was. He was told, go home, don't talk about it, get on with life. And being as they were in those days, they obeyed those commands. You talk to the children again and they will say, in middle life, our fathers had all sorts of problems. They had flashbacks, they had nightmares, they had dreams, they began to relive the experience through which they had passed. And it was exceptionally difficult for our mother and in our family because there was a whole area that they couldn't talk about and didn't talk about. And then this had a detrimental effect on them all. So the theory is that if you come out of an experience of, of trauma of that kind, um, if you can manage it rather than pushing it down and be managed by it later, you're in a stronger position. And I think that's what happened to me. Now also, I, when, when I came out, I spent time putting on paper the book that I've written in my head. It's actually a book called Taken on Trust. And I put that book on paper when I came out. And at the time, I didn't think that was a therapeutic exercise, but it was. It was a way, again, of objectifying the experience, putting it on paper and managing it, rather than being managed by it. And, you know, one would encourage anybody who's been through an experience of trauma, not just to bury it, but to relate to it in a way that you can manage in 2012, you returned to Beirut and you met with a senior official from Hezbollah, uh, the same group who was accused of kidnapping you 25 years earlier. Would you say that you have now forgiven those people who took you hostage? Oh, unquestionably, I have. <laughs> uh, you can forgive, of course, and I do forgive. Of course I do. Um, doesn't mean to say you agree with what was done. That's a different matter altogether. I disagree with the tactics that are adopted. But of course I understand. Now, I think if I was in the position that some of these people are in, um, would I remain outside those groups? Um, people who have suffered deprivation and warfare all their lives... Now, I, I do not for a moment 
justify some of the terrible things that happen. And my goodness, I've had to watch professionally some of these horrible videos that are being distributed by ISIS and others of people being beheaded and of a man being set on fire in a cage. That is, it's beyond belief, isn't it? It's awful. I couldn't condone that. But what I do know, of course, is that the people who commit those outrages and those atrocities, they're put forward by groups from behind. They're psychopaths. Psychopathic characters and terrorist groups always attract a proportion of psychopaths within them. Um, they're not the people you can talk with. The people you can talk with are the people behind the scenes. I think it is dreadful, dreadful that um, people behind the scenes will condone and support that behaviour. But then you look at warfare and uh, you see the bombing of villages and the bombing of areas ostensibly to get rid of the terrorists but how many thousands again of innocent men women and children have been killed hundreds of them i mean it's so much more dramatic to see it a man burning to death in a cage of course that is horrible but thousands of people have been burned to death in their homes as well and it just i mean you sometimes say to yourself, is this world mad? Are we mad in the way we behave one with another, thinking that we're going to resolve the world's problems through warfare? We're going to resolve... How many people have been displaced as a result of warfare? Thousands. And, you know, I'm speaking uh, to uh, an audience now, primarily, I suspect, in Australia, which has had a fairly strict policy on immigration. Now, Australia can be condemned for that by some people, but you can understand it, because what Australia is saying in part is if you flood a country with people who are coming in, the country can't bear that, the local community can't bear that. Um, what you have to do is measure it. And this, it's a, the reason I say that is because this problem of the mass migration of people and the people fleeing for security is not just a problem for one country. It is a global problem. And we're not tackling it as a global problem. The UN should be tackling this as a global problem. The countries of the world together recognize that they all have to take a share in this. And the real solution at the end of the day does not lie in people migrating. It lies in resolving the reasons for their migration back in their own countries. And that is something we've got to give a lot more attention to and a lot more support to. Because the vast majority of people who are um, fleeing don't want to leave their homes. They want to stay there, but they can't stay there because it's become intolerable. And those are the, we've got to get to the source of the problems. All the time at the moment, we are being forced into dealing with secondary problems. And that leads to then criticisms, condemnations, um, you know, finger-pointing, why is Australia doing that, or why is somebody doing that, or why is somebody taking nobody? It's much deeper than that, much deeper issue. 
Do you think that we are getting again closer to dealing with that as a primary problem, or does it does it seem to me you that it's getting worse? I can't see that we are really. I just feel that. Well, I, I speak not not about Australia. I speak about my own situation. Um, I just wonder. I question whether our politicians really understand the historical background of the countries of they, they are dealing with, the Middle East. Now, I have little doubt that our politicians, um, our, beg your pardon, our foreign office officials have a quite a good understanding. Little doubt about that. I remember at the time of the Iran-Iraq war when uh, Britain was uh, going hand-in-glove with America to oust Saddam Hussein. I remember 18 diplomats, former, uh, formerly who had served in the Middle East, British diplomats. They got an experience and knowledge of the Middle East that was unrivaled, and they warned against this. They were retired, and so they could speak in public. They were totally ignored by politicians, totally ignored. They said, go, no, 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 remove Saddam, we remove the problem. Well, how mistaken was that? But it was, it was said. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. By foreign office officials. So it leads you to say... How deep an understanding is there of the situation that faces these people in the Middle East? How deep, how, how, how much do they understand of the history, which has a big bearing on the subject? And this is interesting because at this time in our experience in life, history is being played down. And in many cases, attempt to rewrite it. You know, to rewrite history according to our convenience. Well, we should not do that. We should take a strong, hard look at history of the region and understand the history, which helps you understand some of the problems that occur today. Do you think the value of knowledge itself is being played down? I think we are... What it, what it seems to me is that universities, which are supposed to be centres of, of information, knowledge, research are under increasing pressure um, uh, to conform. And sometimes that pressure is coming from students themselves. Universities should be areas, areas where there is free speech, where you should be able to air viewpoints, even though they may be heretical viewpoints and viewpoints that you don't, you know, you would not stand the light of day. There they should be subject to scrutiny rather than saying, oh, we can only mouth what is the current political present philosophy of the day. Universities ought to be places where there is a strong, good, healthy atmosphere, critical atmosphere, where people can speak freely, uh, say what they like. Now, you can't say what you like because you're going to be prosecuted, you know? They send a chance of being prosecuted. Anyway, so... Um, 
I just think we're moving into a very peculiar era at the moment. And uh, I think it'll be a while before we begin to understand really fully what, what it is that's happening to us as a nation and as a, as a, in a, as a global nation. Terry, we're, we're here at the, the Crawford School of Public Policy and last year um, the school director, Helen Sullivan, wrote a piece about the importance of empathy and she argued that empathy is a essential element in public engagement and in policy making. And I'm recalling that piece as I'm hearing you talk and I, I just would be very keen to hear your thoughts on the role of, of empathy about how we think about others You've had an experience where I think most would think it must be very difficult to have empathy for those who held you captive, but you obviously have done a lot of thinking around these issues. I think it has. Empathy has a major, major part, and I think he's absolutely right when he makes that point. One of the things that I think captivity did for me was this, that prior to captivity, as I said earlier in this interview, I had always a sympathy for those who found themselves on the margins of life. And sympathy is to feel sorry for. I think captivity changed it for me so that sympathy was converted into empathy. And empathy means not just to feel sorry for, but to know actually how someone feels who is kicked around, who has no status in life, who is deprived. Um, I've been through that. I know what it is to be at the bottom of the heap. I know what it is to be deprived. I know what it is to be kicked around. I know what it is never to know whether you're going to see the end of the day or not. Now, there are thousands of people like that in the world who are not necessarily imprisoned, but are living in some of the the, um, townships and slums of our world who live in that situation. Um, And... I'm grateful for captivity for that, for enabling me to say, well, I know, I understand how you feel. Not just have so- not just sorry for you. And if you understand how somebody feels, at least you're beginning to get on the wavelength whereby together you can see how best to deal with things. Now, I'm not... I don't want anyone to run away with the idea who's listening to this podcast that I'm all heart and sympathy, you know, all bleeding heart. I'm a realist, you know. I know there are... Uh, tricksters and there are people who are trying to pull the wool over your eyes of course you know of course I know all that but uh, I just think that empathy yes it is important and should be have an important role in all these discussions Terry, when listening to you talk now and, and hearing the lecture that you gave earlier here at the school um, I wonder whether you see a distinction between hostage-taking for different motivations. Um, the, the empathy that you talk about, um, one can perhaps see in terms of, of political motivations. Is it any different when the motivations might be cast as criminal, when it seems to be just about money um, and, and, and getting ransoms? Or do you see a em- role for empathy regardless of the motivation? Well, I think hostage-taking, um, at one time, a period in history was predominantly um, political. That means, you know, the hostage is taken by a group who want to achieve a certain political goal. I think it's significantly changed now to becoming predominantly criminal for criminal uh, purposes, for the extraction of ransom, payment of ransom. And more and more criminal gangs have come into it. 
there's this ongoing debate as to you know whether or not government should pay ransom. Uh, in my view, government should not pay ransom. Governments definitely should not, because it really means they're submitting to blackmail. You should not blackmail governments. You should not blackmail anybody. <laughs> Having said that, but also. Um, if you do that, if, you, if governments pay ransom, it's just encouraging hostage-taking, there's no doubt about it. Um, having said that, though, of course, how do you deal with these situations? Well, negotiation and in, in these situations is, again, a secondary. You've got to get to the root issue. Why is it that we've got these criminal gangs and why is it they're getting away with it in these countries? And one of the answers to that is because the country is, is near to, or very often, a failed state. That in fact they're not functioning properly. The law and order is broken down. The government is corrupt. Uh, those are the issues that have got to be tackled. Of course, in the meantime, you have to deal with the secondaries. But if you're a medical practitioner, you know you don't deal with symptoms, you don't treat symptoms. The symptoms guide you to the basic problem. And hostage taking for ransom or for whatever it is, is a symptom of a deeper disorder. Now our politicians should be addressing themselves, what is that deep disorder? How do we deal with that? How can it be dealt with? It's not dealt with necessarily by just dishing out aid. It's a very complex issue to deal with. But that's the way we have to deal with it. And it is, I understand how complicated it is. I've worked with these problems myself. But um, I'm sure that's the truth. Have governments and supporting agencies gotten any better at dealing with and responding to hostage situations? Have there been any sort of clear lessons being absorbed about what to do and what not to do? Oh, I think, I think there's been a considerable development over the, the last years uh, for example, in terms of family support, at one time, you know, um, a, a, a Department of Foreign Affairs, I'm not speaking about any particular country now, but the, the, the department responsible for foreign affairs would argue, well, you know, our business is foreign affairs. We can't spend time dealing with people pastorally, you know, with families. I mean, they'll give them a phone call now and again. But there's a recognition around the world now that, the families are just as important as the hostage themselves and that it is a responsibility to make sure that a family has adequate pastoral and sport at a time when someone is taken hostage. So I've been to considerable advances in that field. And in the UK, from where I hail from and where I'm working, um, Hostage UK, which I founded some years ago, uh, we are totally independent of government but we work closely with government in this whole issue of family support and government, you know, with the full support and understanding of government, although we are separate from government. So, yes, there have been big developments. Terry, you, you mentioned um, Hostage UK, an organisation that you co-founded and that you're president of that provides support to hostages and to their families. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that, that Hostage UK does and the way you provide that support to people who so desperately need it? Hostage families often say that there is no substitute uh, when they suffer the loss of a family member, no substitute for them talking to someone who's been through the experience, either as a family member 
or the hostages themselves. Now, what happens in the UK is that when someone is taken hostage, the uh, British Foreign Office will be in touch with that family back at home. Um, they will uh, make provision for the police um, to uh, police family support unit to be on hand for the family to take use of if they wish, and the police support unit will be with that family. They will also inform them of the existence of Hostage UK. Hostage UK being the organisation that uh, I founded some years ago. It's entirely up to the family whether they contact us or not. In the majority of cases, they do. If so, if they contact us, and we have written for the Foreign Office all the documentation that is sent out to families, you know, telling them what to expect and so on and so forth. If they do um, get in touch with us, then we will appoint somebody to be with that family for as long as they need. Um, I was only talking this morning to um, the director of Hostage UK that's here with me in Australia, and she was talking to me. She's still talking to somebody who was uh, I was talking to in 2010, you know, and they're still that's still in touch with us, still working with us, um, having unresolved issues from 2010. Now we will stay with them for as long as necessary. A government can't afford to do that. As soon as a hostage is released or declared uh, to be dead, then the, the support will taper. But it's at that time, very often, that the family need the support, need help. And there are all sorts of things that, that um, families find difficult. For example, I can think of just one very simple matter. Um, husband and wife living in England, the husband goes away to work for three months on a contract overseas, he's taken hostage. She's left at home with the children. Okay, an insurance policy is due. Um, she receives the papers and she needs the money. Uh, it requires his signature. So she writes the insurance company and says, I'm sorry, I can't give you a signature because my husband uh, is captive. They write back and say, well, without your husband's signature, you can't get the money. Well, I mean, common thing, it's an experience. I mean, what we've been able to do, of course, in that very practical situation, is go right round that and say, get onto the head of the insurance company, and say, come on, you know, common sense here. And of course, have, have facilitated the way. That's just one very practical example of the type of help that, that is required. There are all sorts of things, dozens of practical examples I could give you um, uh, in this field. And so uh, we've built up over the years a very strong and good working relationship with the government, maintaining, as I said, our own independence. And also here in Australia, um, we never make public with whom we're working or how many people we're working with. We leave that entirely to the families themselves if they wish to make it public. We don't. We don't say how many or where or when. But all I can say is that we've had um, very good relationships here with the Australian government who've been very supportive of us and we've been very supportive of them over the, uh, over the years. Just a, a bigger picture question as we, we draw to the end of our conversation here. You've had experiences that I think most of us would, would just 
find it impossible to imagine. Um, and you know what your family went through when you were in captivity. You've seen what's happened to other people and to other families. How do you maintain your trust in other people? How do you maintain um, your your faith in humanity? And, and listening to you talk, you clearly do have faith in humanity. You have some level of trust in other people. How have you been able to hang on to that, given all you've been through? I think fundamentally believing that there is, there is a good side in pretty well everybody. There are very, very few people in the world who one might say are totally evil. There are probably one or two who are just totally given over to depravity. But, I mean, I've, I've, apart from hostages, I've spent a lot of time working in prisons. And, you know, just a, this one's one point about that. When you, the general attitude of the public, understandably, is they're fed up with crime, they're fed up, and, and, and who wouldn't be when your apartment is broken into or when your car is broken into or vandalised or when you suffer an even greater injury? Who wouldn't be mad? Of course, it'd be odd if you were not mad. But when you look at it, 64% of the people, people in British prisons, male and female, are suffering from some form of mental illness or personality disorder. 64% official statistic. What if that is dealing with people? Um, so I think that the answer is don't categorise people. How do you maintain your faith? Don't categorise people. Don't say, oh, prison, write them all off, or write all this lot off, or write the whole of the Middle East off. All those, those Arabs are just a bunch of no-goods. It's totally wrong to do that. Maintain your faith and belief in human nature. Recognise there's good in all people. Recognise there are tricksters, of course, and you can have the wool pulled over your eyes, and there will be people who always be ready to do you down. But don't essentially lose faith in human nature. Terry White, there's some fascinating observations there and we're really grateful for you sharing your time and sharing your insights with the Policy Forum Pod audience. Thanks for coming on. Thank you and I'm grateful to Australia in the British winter for sharing the sunshine. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much, Thank Terry. Thank you, Wow, so how about that? That was uh, Terry White being interviewed by myself and uh, Sharon Bessel and talking here at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Uh, Sharon, I'll pick your brains about what stood out for you in a second. But for me, one thing that really jumped out was when we asked him about whether he had been able to forgive his captors. And I was really struck by, he didn't, you know, just jump in and say, yes, I have forgiven them. He was very firm that, you know, he, he absolutely forgave them for what he, for what he did to them. And I think that's quite an extraordinary statement from him, and it probably shows the, the character of the man. I guess it also, for me, shows that perhaps he, over time, has been able to really think through the terrible experience that he went through and sort of rationalise it and put it into a, a broader context and the broader context of the various things that have happened in his life and the various things that he's seen. I just thought it was an ex extraordinary, powerful and immediate response. What about you? What stood out for you from that interview? 
I agree, Martin, that it was an incredibly powerful interview, um, an incredible opportunity to hear what what Terry has to say about his own experiences and more broadly. Um, I was also struck by the way he responded to your question about forgiveness. You know, that was genuine and heartfelt, but also deeply considered. Um, He's obviously really thought these issues through. And I think related to that, one of the things that, that I take away from it was some of the things he said around empathy and speaking to this idea of empathy. Um, we referred in the interview to the piece that our school director, Professor Helen Sullivan, wrote last year about the importance of empathy in public engagement and in policy making. And it really struck me that this is something that Terry Waite lives, that he embodies. One of the things that was very powerful for me was the way in which he was able to step out of his own experience and that experience was shocking but he was able to step out of that and to understand the drivers why other people had acted as they acted and not to justify not to excuse he said himself he's no bleeding heart but to genuinely understand and I think it's that understanding that brings empathy my sense was that for him that's brought peace because he understands. But it seems to me that that empathy also brings the possibility and the promise of finding resolutions to fundamentally deep problems in our societies. It's only if we can do what Terry does and understand what drives other people, um, the pain and the suffering that others have, have been through, um, to, to understand them and then to bring that to our analysis of the world. It, it, it was a very in- interesting insight, I think, into how people can respond to really terrible things that happen in their lives. I mean, I can't imagine the situation where if someone took me captive for five years, kept me in solitary confinement for four years, that at any point in my life I might be able to say, absolutely, I forgive these people for you know taking away this significant part of my life while I was in the sort of prime of my life. Yeah, so it's a v- very interesting in- insight, I, th- I think. Was there anything else that, that stood out for you? Yeah, I, I think that there were so many things in this interview um, that, that really give one pause for thought. Terry, I think, was able to deeply understand both humanity and inhumanity. You know, he made the point that there are very, very few people who are all evil, um, but he, he deeply understood where inhumane practices come from. But what really stood out with me as he talks, for me as he talked some of those issues through was what he said about history and the importance of us understanding history, not just personal histories, but global, political, social, economic histories, and what that means for the way we approach problems and challenges today. And I think that is such a powerful point that he makes about the importance of history and not rescripting, changing, revising history, Um, but understanding history. And a couple of issues came to mind as Terry was talking, and one was the way in Australia that we we talk about um, our, our past and the history of um, white and Indigenous contact in Australia, the debates that we've had very recently about um, about Australia Day. Some years ago, John Howard's comments about a black armband view of history. And I think, you know, we can, we can take a lead from Terry to say it's not about blame. It's not about attributing blame in history. It's about understanding genuinely what happened and what that impact has been 
throughout history and today. So I think there's something really fundamental that we can take away from what he says about the importance of history. Um, very recently in Poland, you know, we see legislation that has not yet been signed by the president, um, but looks as though it may be passed, that um, makes it a criminal offence for people to blame Poland um, for any aspect of the Holocaust, for what happened to Jewish people during that period of time, for the, for the murders and the, the horrors that were, were perpetrated. And this is deeply disturbing. And it's exactly what Terry is warning us against, that we mustn't rescript history. We must face and understand it um, and learn from it because that's the only way we can move forward. So I think some really deeply powerful things in what he says. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, lots of interesting stuff and lots of stuff to be f food for thought, I think. So in that discussion, we talked about a piece which was written by the Crawford School director, Helen Sullivan, which looked at empathy and the role of empathy in public policy. We'll make sure that there is a link to that piece in the description of this pod. It's well worth a read, I think. And of course, it's also... Um possible for people to listen to the audio of Terry Waite's lecture yesterday. That will be um, up on our website and there'll be a link to that lecture. Again, very powerful and well worth listening to. Again, just a warning that there is some um, understandably graphic content, some description of some very harrowing experiences in Terry's lecture. Um, so just a, a, a word of warning that um, it's not appropriate for children and people need to be aware of the content. Yeah, it really was quite a harrowing talk. But again, very insightful and absolutely well worth a listen. Well, thank you for joining me, Sharon. It's been a, it's been a fantastic experience, I think. We are really keen to hear your thoughts and views on what we've, been, what we've talked about today. You can get in contact with us. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, or you can reach us on Facebook, where we are Asia and Pacific Policy Society. Don't forget to keep an eye on policyforum.net, where we've got lots of insights into the public policy challenges facing the Asia and Pacific region and beyond. We'll be back soon with another Policy Forum pod, but until... Then from me, Martin Pierce. And from me, Sharon Bessel. Right, we'll say cheerio. See you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.